0: Warm welcome to this year's seventh installation of the e-lounge. Today, we are honored to be joined by a developmental economist, a columnist, a broadcaster, activist, and author, Ayabonga Kawe Umbatane Unonzaba. He is a founder and managing director of SCB Holdings and sits on various presidential advisory panels, such as the National Minimum Wage Advisory Panel and the vet zero rating review panel. Batane holds a master's cum laude in developmental theory and policy from the University of Rand. His book, The Economy on Your Doorstep, probes the reasons for the tragic paradox of South African life. Ayabonga goes through and beyond what is wrong with our economy and explains how economic actions frame the lives of south africans in a transitional society faced with challenges of unemployment poverty inequality the book outlines some key areas that can and should define the policy agenda towards a people's economy in south africa insights and inspiration stimulate great conversation the elounge is one of our knowledge share platforms anchored on our values of learning and leadership we do hope that you tune in, engage, and take away the knowledge from this great conversation and always remember those who desire to lead should read. Thank you. Two,
1: As the song goes, the Nigerian born singer, uh, Benaboy, he says, for this life I day." I want to be celebrated i don't want to i want to be celebrated i don't want to spend my days uh, waste my days i want to spend them on enjoyment it's plenty order hennessy now my guest today says no 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 no." the politics of consumption are not in agreement with with Ben boy and i say mr Kawe, why my guest today I am um, the author of The Economy on Your Doorstep. Today we'll talk about the politics of consumption, we'll talk about where we come from as what do they call it, as a country, and we'll talk about where we're going, and ultimately, the three
2: missions. Welcome sir. here. how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I must, I must tell you, Benaboy is one of my favorite artists. So I don't want you uh, f- to make me squabble with Burn uh, But yeah, I look forward to our discussion and thank you so much for the invitation. Let's get right into it. Who is Ayabongaka? Sure, sure. Look, I mean, Ayabongaka is a 30-something-year-old young South African, uh, an African um, who has grown up in a society in deep transition. Um, I still think South Africa very much is still a society in transition. Um, And I'm, uh, by my own admission, a a multi-talented person. I do quite a lot of things in different spaces. Um, But I'm a development economist by training, uh, working in the spaces of academia, broadcasting, uh, the world of policy, um, and uh, I guess of late also an author. Um, and uh, I've really enjoyed the challenge of trying to grapple with my own thoughts, put them down on paper. Uh, and uh, that process, of course, also happened at a very difficult time. We were dealing with COVID 19. Uh, a lot of this book is, was written during uh, the hard lockdown, um, from, of course, a lot of work that I'd gathered over the last five years to 10 years or so.
1: Before we get into it, mm. you owe me two more books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure i sure I should have some to Before in the we get on with it, you owe me two more <laughs> books and and, and, and and let's get on with your love for economics sure, and how sure. you got into economics. And and, and and something that you didn't deal with um in this particular book. Mm. The role of education and yeah. you know the the probably the downgrading of, of mathematics mm. and the challenge why we do not have as many economists as we should have as a country. Mm. But um, how did you end up in, in economics? And, and yeah. before we even get into the sure,
2: complex sure. thoughts in this book. It's so interesting, actually, that you, that you uh, draw out that connection between mathematics and the study of economics. Yes, yes. Because if you look at most economists, a lot of them were mathematicians. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's Keynes, Marx, uh, a lot of them were people who were very proficient in the language of mathematics, if I can put it that way. But for me, I think I... I didn't always want to be an economist. Okay. Um, at some stage, I had dreams of being a chartered accountant because whenever I read the papers, all the CEOs were CAs. Um, but I think for me, it happened at a time where, towards the tail end of my teenage years, mm-hmm. where the idealism starts. You know, where you start to ask questions: Why, why is the society like this? Mm. And I think the first introduction was in a mathematics class, um, and we had a teacher who said before we even get into the equations and all of that stuff, let's sit down and ask what, what, what you would use a lot of this for in life. Um, and they spoke about economics and it didn't register really. And then I became part of a group called the 12th Club at Queen's College where I went to school. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would take the top six students or top eight students in grade 11 and top eight students in, in matric uh, and they would create this club where there would be issues of discussion, be it current affairs, scientific inquiry and so on. And I remember in a lot of those sessions always asking questions, and I remember the teacher used to always say, well, that might be best answered by economics. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in the history class, a lot of the questions we would ask about why is it that people go to war? Why is it that uh, material conditions change in such a way that it creates contestations in the society? Mm. Um, And our teachers would always say, well, maybe economics can answer that. But my school didn't offer economics. So I had then the chance when I got to Witz um, after trick. Uh, initially, having registered for a BCOM law, um, and then took up economics and ended up majoring in that um, and, and finance in my undergraduate, mm-hmm. um, and decided to continue, but now branch off into development economics, largely because it, it was able to explain a lot of the transitions and the difficulties of the places that I came from, um, you know, more than maybe other branches of economics. Uh, and that's how I ended up studying it. Um, and uh, also, I guess, having been part of the student movement, um, there was always the need to use economic tools to explain particular things or to even contest certain ideas that were being presented.
1: This is a book like no other. An important book for that matter. Hmm. But it's not a book that naturally anybody would just go and say, look, yes. I need to read Unless this. you're looking for it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. unless you're looking for it. But... Yeah. Uh, get me into your, your, your thought process right there and there. I know you do a lot of interviews. You, mm. you write for, what do they call it, for, for, uh, for, for, for a for number of publications, day, yeah. Business mm. Day and everybody else, and, mm. and the Daily Maverick and, mm. and, and, and things like that. But what, what sparked beyond the curiosity that lies in, you know, you exploring the issues that start off the book? But sure. What, what actually, what was the concept when we were starting off?
2: I didn't want to write this book now, actually. Um, I've I've always had a belief I've got three books in me Mm -hmm. uh, in in this one lifetime. I told you you owe me two more. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've always felt I've got three books in me. Um, I was approached by the publisher who said, look, it seems you're writing a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think you've got bandwidth for a book? Uh, So I met with her and I said, no, man, I'll think about it. I'm not sure. And I remember on one Saturday, I, I, it came to me and I realized, you know what, take this thing up mm-hmm. because there, you are in a moment now where there are a lot of contestations about um, the economic direction the society must take. Mm-hmm. What are the tools that sit in different places in the society? How do you make sense of all of these things? So this is, is the moment. And if you miss this window, there might not be another opportunity to write the kind of book
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that I ended up writing here. So. I then agreed to the publisher I said, look, give me 18 months. Um, She decided to give me 15 months. Um, And in so doing, what it was was to go back to all of the research interviews and even some of the radio interviews I'd done over the last few years um, and try and put together a body of ideas in the first part of the book that are able to grapple with the context that we see all around us. And then in the second part of the book, revisit some of the columns that I'd written over the last five years or so. So the first part of the book, I must say, was the more difficult part to do. Um, the first chapter around what happened in the town I grew up in, um, and as an early introduction, I guess, to you know, how political struggle interfaces with economics, um, was a bit easier to write because we had been working on a documentary for the last sort of two or three years before. So we had all the material. Um, But I think the second part of the book, um, which I think delves into the missions, as you said, and we'll come back to that, and even the section on financialization of the economy, Mm -hmm. um, was probably much more difficult to write and needed a bit more research. And and I think my thought process at the time was, what do I want somebody to leave with after having read the book? Mm -hmm. And I think it's two things for me. The one is to feel that all of these things that we see every night on the television say the Brent crude oil price has gone up, this or the other has happened, are not things that should be far removed from our experience. Mm. So that was the first one. But the second part is to also say very much of the South African economy is still open to contestation, open to being influenced in very particular ways. Um, And what it requires us to do is to have the vantage point and the tools to be able to engage in that discussion. Economics and economic policy is too important Mm. An undertaking and exercise to just be left to economists, and I think this book really was not—it's not a book meant for economists. Mm-hmm. What, although a lot of economists like it, mm-hmm. uh, but I think it's meant as a book for people who are interested in agitating for change. Um, and I think that's—that's that's what informed me even before I started writing some of the material.
1: This is an important issue that you've just raised now, because when we talk. Economics and you know, in the general uh, nature of it, we can't talk the economics of the day or sure. the a period, a decade, or, mm. or something of that sort. But what you did is you went right back. You know, it, 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 it is always said that the the buffalo tree or umla as they refer to it in Zulu, has two horns, two tones. Mm. The small one that is very uh. uh uh, uh, it's very small but it's, it's very prickly and, yeah, and it could go deep
4: it, it, it faces <laughs> yeah.
1: back and then the, 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 the other one faces forward, forward the yeah. reason for that is that you must look back but don't get hooked up by the small town yeah. and you'll see that it's three has this crooked way of moving around now you have to remember mm. that in essence that is a reminder for you that you must look back before you look forward yeah. but always face forward so that let's before we look forward and mm. then we go to the missions and do all sorts of other things Let's go back into history. Sure. The apartheid machinations and what do mm. they call it? And, 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 and in itself, first and foremost, that Land Grey Act. Mm. Mm. And what it meant to, you know, the dispositions of Africans. Because sure, that is an important sure. conversation. Sure. It is You know, this book explains a lot. I go to the Eastern Cape quite a lot. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people there. And the number of farms that are not... Use day yeah. as I drive through bothers me, mm. uh, but I never understood why until now. Yeah. Um, let's go back there and, sure. and talk about sure. those things.
2: Look, I mean, I think for me, as before, a, you guys said yeah. roads must fall. Let's talk about roads. Yes, first. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Look, I mean, even when when we were saying roads must fall, mm. I probably was not as familiar with that history. Okay, uh, and think about it this way: I come from what was the Glengarry district. Yes. Um, both of them, sides of my parents are originally from that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a sense, the moment I come into it, primarily through the work of yes. um, Governor Gov, Mbeki, yes. I begin to realize that actually what was decided in 1894 in the Cape Houses of Parliament has had a much more enduring impact on the organization of African life in the rural areas than what we sometimes understand. Um, so the Glen Grey Act in 1894, establishes three things in African life, which I think are still the difficulty that we need to grapple with. The first one is this issue of marshalling people into small and at times dense pieces of land in order to clear the land for settler occupation, Mm -hmm. occupation by farmers and even industry, Uh, and it's tested out in the Glen Grey area. The second one is this idea of changing the social structure of the African household. Mm -hmm. So this idea that You have this piece of land, we introduce title, but in addition, that title only accrues intergenerationally to the first male. It's called the law of male primogeniture. Now, what then happens if there are five sons? What happens to son number two, son number three, son number four, son number five? All of them, according to the design of Cecil John Rhodes, have to pay a hut tax, not only the one who inherits the land, All of them have to pay a tax irrespective of their ability to pay for it, which is a regressive tax by nature. And that tax is the mechanism that solves the labor problem of the mines and the farms. Because you can't get the cash to pay for the tax without going and engaging in waged employment. And effectively, it creates the disintegration that we also see then becoming a critical part of the migrant labor system. The third element to it, in many ways, is that in embryonic phase, it is the forebearer of the 1913 Native Land Act, and subsequently the cutting up and chopping up of our country into different Bantustans. And if you look at all of the areas, even to this day, that were former Bantustans or where, you know, the Glen Grey Act or other piece of legislation that drew from it were in effect, those are still the areas where people have the least access to internet, the least access to water, the least access to electricity, the least access to you know, quality roads that can move products and people in and out of those areas. Mm-hmm. And they also happen to be, on all economic indicators, the most backward areas, still, to this day, in 2022. And so for me, going back to that history was important in foregrounding that there was a mix of instruments here, fiscal instruments, hut poll taxes, kanda kandapondo, wazur, Um, all of those mechanisms, shuttling of people, the surveying of land, uh, shifting people into the most unproductive and uh, least arable pieces of land, and so on, and also the dispossession of people's cattle, their land, and all of the means they would have to survive outside of the labor market are still things that we are battling with now. Um, And so it was important for me to infuse that history, not because as an economist, history is a big part of my own method,
3: um,
2: but also because... That history has relevance for contemporary debates on land reform, on social security, on economic transformation, and even on things like broad-based black economic empowerment.
1: There's an issue here that that, that you're raising, which is the dispossession of, of Africans, you mm-hmm. know, from to create poll tax, and because it, it's quite a, a strange mechanism, but was one that was quite effective. Yes, create taxes. The men can pay. Mm. He will sell his first cow. He must go to Deba. Yes, (laughs) what is
2: sold on the cows must go to Deba. He must then go to
1: Deba and then ultimately then get to a point where we we he has nothing except to go and work. Exactly. In the mines, in the factories and everywhere else. Mm. And then ultimately create this surplus in Labour.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Now when you've created that surplus in Labour, then you get confused that you want to
2: call another commission. Yes, 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 yeah. Look, in the 1930s, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because less than 50 years after Rhodes presents the Glen Bill in Parliament, mm. in the Cape Houses of Parliament, in 1930, no, 1929, actually, mm. uh, there's a call to create a commission of inquiry into what is called the native economic question. Now, if you recall, 1929 is during the stock market crash yes. of the Great Depression. Mm. So, it's not only African people who are in a state of economic difficulty. But this state of economic difficulty has a particular bearing on African households mm. uh, because of everything else that has happened subsequently. Taken off the land, there's all manner of issues, the introduction of the color bar in the 1920s, which dedicates specific skilled categories of work only to white people and so on. Um, and so, the Holloway Commission in the mm. 1930s is probably one of the most interesting accounts because what it does, it gives a name and a face to some of the people who participated in that commission in places that I recognize, yes. having grown up in the Eastern Cape. So if I look, read the hearings from mm. Kofimvaba, from mm. Lady Frey, mm. from Queenstown where I grew up, from you know Mtata, mm. and some of the names are familiar. Yes. I mean, you know, if I, if I think of the name of Elijah Makiwane, mm. who was a very rich man, very rich African person, uh, cattle, livestock, and so on. Very educated, many of these people were. Um, But also what is of greater interest to me is the voices that we often don't hear in the historic archive. You know, if I think of somebody like Anji Sobopa, who expresses a defiance to these genteel white men who are leading this commission. She's from the African Methodist Episcopal Church from the Gaviite movement at the time. And one of the issues she's raising is the contradictory role of white store traders in the Eastern Cape, who use debt as a conduit for dispossession. We spoke, yes. of course, about the taxes and the taking of people's livestock. But these traders, what they do, because they know Tepo is working the whole year mm. in Johannesburg, Tepo's wife in the homeland will not be able to pay for her month-on-month needs. Mm. So what do I do? I give the goods on consignment. Mm. When Tepo comes back from the mines at the end of the year, he's faced with a massive debt. But also what those African women were saying in that hearing in Gofimwab or oh in Nobosore. they were saying that we get this debt but when I want to sell my produce, yes. it might be yellow maize for feed or whatever, to the same store trader, they squeeze my margins. So they squeeze me so hard that I have to go back to them for debt because even when I bring my produce, I don't get the proper cash consideration for this produce. And all of these are interrelated agents, mm-hmm. the store trader, the politician, the farmer, in white society of a system of accumulation by dispossession. And I argue in the book that strip away all of the other things that we're talking about, the race and all of that stuff, as important as it is, that in many ways that system of dispossession still exists. Think about why is it in rural towns in the Eastern Cape, Lady there is a predominance of cash loan businesses, I was going to ask you the same question. Like, what, what
1: has changed, no. What has changed? Like, you, you, yeah. we're talking about things that happened in the twenties, the thirties, mm. the forties, but the same structure still remains yeah. in place. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and 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 in essence, as mm. we get probably to the late to the latter part, and and having a conversation about what do we do next, sure. the issue is we, we, we cannot change without undoing some of these things and mm. anyway how do you undo it or do you just march forward yeah um yeah. like the tone of the order they call it of the mula and you say no we're pushing forward yeah, uh, yeah. we don't want to get hooked up on what they call it on on on, on the past but let's go back to, to 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 the issues because in essence the conversation we're having here mm. i love the fact that you used an, a, an environment that you know very well, Ekomani, sure. Queenstown mm. and the, the the surrounding areas and then yes. the Eastern Cape in itself and and sometimes you look at the Eastern Cape and you have no understanding of why you're hopeless you feel yeah. hopeless sometimes that's, yeah. that's the best uh, yeah. description of it
2: yeah.
1: but as I look at it and I, I, this story could have been written about the old Buputas on our homeland exactly uh, the Kazankulu bi- yes, the mm. building of Roslin where it's built yes. um, it's like literally Ekaasi, yeah. but it's not Exactly. In what do they call it, in, in the old Buputazwana, yes, it remains yes. this side yeah. and it's got access to Kharanguwa and Mobupani and, yes. the, the, and the people are there, you understand yeah. that, you know, up, up in, in the northern Pretoria. Mm-hmm. Babilekhi is the same, Hammonskral yes. is there, yeah. and Babilekhi works well when you look at it back at, 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 at the, mm-hmm. um, the question of Kuindustria, yes. because the same yes. thing has happened in Babilekhi yeah.
2: and, and everywhere else. Um, I mean, even East Tebe yes. in Guazul-Natal yes. is an example of that. Um, and I think you raise a very important point. All of these things emerge out of a particular political, social, and economic context. In the 50s, I talk about it in the book as well, the Tomlinson Commission, yes. the Afrikaner National Party regime is faced with a conundrum.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: The thing, road started in the late 19th century of trying to take African men of working age off of the land yes. to come and work is now presenting its own challenges in the urban sphere. Because remember, as Africans, you were a resident and a citizen of a homeland.
1: But you could easily be talking about... You could easily be talking about Hilburru right now. Exactly. You were a temporary
2: alien in Soweto. You happen to live in Soweto insofar as you can work. The moment your relationship with your employer is severed, you can no longer have a basis to be in the city. You must go back to your homeland. That's why even your book of life, what would be written was Kazankulu, Ndebele, or whatever. Now, apartheid after the Second World War is then faced with a contextual challenge, an economic issue, and subsequently right through to the 1980s, which is when the post-war boom ends, you can no longer absorb the numbers of African urban population into employed labor. So they are effectively now, they're illegally. Mm And you create all of these mer- measures, lodgers, permit, and all of those things to try and police people and regulate their movements. Mm-hmm. But then the regime realized it's unsustainable to do it. So what did they do? They said, well, let's kill two birds with one stone. Let's give an opportunity to Afrikaner aspirant industrialists. And we'll give them what I call rent opportunities. Mm-hmm. In Babilehi, in Timbaza, in Quindastria, and so mm-hmm. on. On the border of the homelands. Right? Mm-hmm. And what we do is that we give them all the incentives they'll need. We give them rail incentives, electricity incentives. We even give them wage subsidies. And in return, they will get a pliant labor force. We will ban trade union activity in the, in these factories. And effectively, we link them up to the market for whatever it is that they produce. Yes. And we create artificial industry in these areas. But also what it does is that it then stems the tide of people leaving the homelands to come to urban uh, South Africa in the Republic. Mm. And so effectively, they try this thing for about 20, 30 years. By the time 1990 comes, um, many of these artificially created industries Please. are unable to stand the weight of international competition. And I think it's one of the issues we need to engage with, Pratsepo, because in many of our communities, you go to Brits right now, Please. you go to Harangua, mm. many people will say the apartheid regime was better because Babelechi used to work. We used to, business yeah, business business. Business. Yes. without understanding some of the policy questions that gave rise to that msebins and the terms. I don't think anybody who works in a factory now would agree to the kind of draconian and authoritarian uh, production system that that, that that was associated with that. The wages, I mean I even say in the book mm. we're nowhere near industrial wages in other parts of the country. Um, and I think the task now and the challenge that confronts us um, in post-apartheid South Africa is how do we take the best of what was seen there and transform it in a way that makes our township economies not only consumptive and retail economies, but also producing economies and and economies that can add value to some of the products that we create.
1: But was this some form of state capture in a way?
2: Of course. Of course. Roads was state capture. (laughs) The first example of state capture, actually. Uh, And and, you know, sometimes we don't talk about these things, right? I mean, the idea of South Africa is not even two hundred years old as a phenomenon. This country, before nineteen ten, is effectively a wild, wild west of contestations between different commercial, political, and social interests. Van Riebeek comes here on behalf of a company. Of course, it's a company that has a charter from, you know, the king of the Netherlands or whatever. And similarly, the British come here for solely commercial reasons, and their fight and contestation is what then gives rise. To what we understand as the Union of South Africa. So, so in a sense, we are a nation in becoming. Um, and the capture by commercial, you know, um, the corporate capture of the state is something baked in as a feature since the arrival in 1652 uh, of Europeans in this country. The incredible bit in the book is
1: when you start talking about the consumer boycott yes, in uh, Queenstown, yeah. the first one. Yes, yes and, and, and and to me, you know... I've,
2: I've, I've since realized it wasn't the first one, but yes, we can
1: talk but, about but that. But, yeah, you yeah. know, for me, it's like... Yeah. Um, it's an interesting conversation, mm-hmm. because to us... I mean, I know the consumable court of 86. Yes, yes, I know the consumable courts that followed subsequent yes, to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Abandu used to be made to drink whatever In they bought. the Val. Yes, and yeah, all over yeah, the place. Yeah, sure, and sure. thing. Now, it's an interesting bit, because suddenly when... And, and we have to talk about this power that we hold. Yes. The power of consumption. Yes, sir. Because ultimately, everything leads there. Yes, sir. Because at that point in time, we were able to numerous times force change. Mm. did it as menial as it was. Yeah. Let's talk about that one in, 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 in Queenstown.
2: Yo, you know, or the first yeah. of those that called, yeah. that actually happened. You know, it's so, it's so interesting that we're having this discussion now because I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah. Because one of the gentlemen who was a respondent for, for me in that piece was put um, you know, to rest over the course of the weekend, uh, Mr. Daniel Loloana, mm-hmm. uh, who was one of the leaders of the ad hoc committee, the residence ad hoc committees. Yes. Now I say it wasn't the first boycott because mm. having gone to the archive subsequently, mm. I begin to find that the African National Congress in Queenstown in the 50s yes. was already planning boycott actions of specific business people in the town who weren't in support. This is the time of the Defiance campaign. Yes who weren't in support or were mistreating their workers and so on. And there's a story of a meeting where Walter Susulu goes and he addresses people there and so on. Yeah. So, so in a way, there was a continuity in generations. The first victim of the consumer boycott in Queenstown had been involved in the 1950s in the Defiance campaign and had come back now as an elder yes. of a younger generation. There, But the point you're raising around withdrawal of our buying power, yes. I think is critical. It's critical because in the post-apartheid period, a type of consumer advocacy has died in South Africa. You sometimes hear people, yeah, let's boycott this brand, this brand doesn't treat us well, you know, there's a hair issue and all of those things that we hear. Mm -hmm. But there's no real politics that says, act as a group, not as individuals. My my buying power as an individual
3: Mm -hmm.
2: is inconsequential. But if I am able to build a mass struggle around us not buying from a particular entity. Because capitalism functions, or industry or business functions, on the basis of being able to get sales through the till. And many of the people at that stage in 1985 in Gomani were saying, we live in a very particular kind of squalor. It's a squalor unparalleled, even in towns that are smaller than Queenstown. The fact that less than 50 years ago, people in Queenstown were still using public toilets... No toilet in the yard, even. Mm. The fact that people's children were being taught in zinc structures on people's garages, the fact that there were no recreational facilities, the fact that there was all of the things that are critical to reproducing successive generations of the workforce were not in place, is why the community then said, if you are not interested in replenishing every single day by making our lives livable, mm. successive waves of the workforce, then you do not deserve that workforce nor do you deserve the hard-earned rands of that workforce. And I think it created a stalemate, which was only resolved, by the way, when the transitional local councils, after the end of apartheid, then became effective local government. So from 1986, right up until 1993, 94, in many towns across the country, you had this dual form of power, where the regime was still in power, but you effectively had community structures that were democratic, participatory, emerging from what were called liberated zones running the place. And I think for me, it is one of the biggest lessons in economics. You know, in economics you talk about the Keynesian function. Yes. Consumption, investment, government spending, net exports, uh, and investment there somewhere. And that C, which is at the start of that yes. equation, consumption, is something that we have never taken a critical view. So I start in Queenstown to make a bigger point later on using Big Zulu and uh, you know, Kanye West, yes. and uh, uh, I should have used Burner now that you mentioned <laughs> it. Um, but in a sense, it's really about saying we have power in difference, And one of the pieces of power we have is from the moment you open your wallet and you create a want. Yes. And that want has to correspond with all of the things that you find valuable. Your entire value system, how you want to be treated or not treated, how you think ideally this country should be. If we can't marry the use of our buying power uh, to that, then there's a problem. And of course now somebody might say, Ayabonga, you're speaking from a position of privilege. I can't make a choice if I'm going into a shop and I only have 100 Rand, whether or not I must agitate for a consumer or whatever. If this thing is cheap, I'm gonna buy it.
1: But Ayabonga, haven't we become Twitter politicians and Twitter activists. Yes, we are. Because that's that's what we do. We all sit yeah. there in our houses, and then you know somebody tweets something we don't like, and mm-hmm. we get on. And, and the facelessness of what are they call it, of our boycott, yeah. or yeah. the anonymity yeah. of our boycott, has allowed us to sit comfortably where we sit. Yeah. Uh, And this organization, in actual fact, we are misusing social social, uh, media media tools that we're supposed to use, I mean, that we use for the Arab Arab Spring and everything else out in the world to change the lives of the people. We're misusing them by,
2: you know, black Twitter. I mean, that's one thing I don't even... But, Bratepo, it's also, for me, the lack of a political character in the black middle class, Right. People are engaged in struggle in our communities yes. every day yeah. right but as a middle class you now we're behind our keyboards right yeah. and i always argue that we as the middle class black middle class yeah. are a shapeless and unreliable let alone dependent ally yes. for the working class and yet all of us are two paychecks away from the breadlines. That- all of us don't have assets mm-hmm. all of us don't well in the meaningful sense yes. aside from your bonded homes and whatever mm-hmm. all of us don't have The kind of things where if you were hit by serious financial shock today, you'd be able to recover from.
1: You saw it during COVID.
2: We don't have that. And yet, we are a shapeless and a very vocal, I must say, Mm -hmm. class and a layer in the society. And it's a layer that if we do not find common cause with the many masses of people who are excluded, discouraged, work seekers, people sitting on the margins of our society, then the society, as unequal as it is, is going to burn.
1: Before we get to that level of what are they call it, mm. of treaty politics, let's talk about African nationalism sure. versus African nationalism. nationalism. Yes, and yes, in essence, yeah. us coming back to this conversation yes, because yes. The, the, the segue you, you you you'll see African nationalism has actually continued and evolved yeah, yeah. to its modern form. Yes, yes. But yeah. somehow African But let's get on to what are Let's explain the
0: concept. I
2: actually was wanting to listen to you because I think you're taking it somewhere where I I don't go in the book. Yes. Um, I mention it, but I don't go there. I think you're right. Africana nationalism across space and time has morphed into different things. Yes. African nationalism also has not been static. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: But I think what has happened is that the class character of African nationalism in South Africa has shifted. So if, if you think about Afrikaner nationalism, yes, let's go to the Anglo-Boer War. At yes. the end of the war, the Treaty of Vereeniging, they come together, they decide, okay, guys, we're done fighting now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They get reparations, they get a good start or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But by the twenties, there's a lot of disaffection among the Afrikaners. Mm-hmm. They are saying the droughts are hitting us. There's a massive exodus of Afrikaner women and children, to the cities mm-hmm. because of the agricultural productivity declines and the weakness and so on and all of that. And the Great Depression makes it worse. And I, I argue that it's those conditions of the first 30 years of disaffection with the Union of South Africa mm-hmm. by the Afrikaners in South Africa that gives rise to the 1948 moment. Mm-hmm. And Afrikaner nationalism then in 1948 becomes a project of solving the poor white problem. So, if you look, for instance, at, uh, I grew up in a neighborhood that used to be, that was built for railway workers. Mm. It's a lovely neighborhood. I mean, black middle class now live there or whatever. With its red tiled roof. Yes, but when it's it was built, built. <laughs> yes. when it was built, it was meant for poor railway workers. Um, I mean, not even teachers lived there. Mm. It was that, that lower layer mm. of, uh, you know, Africana, you know, poor people in the society. And the Afrikaner, I always argue that actually Afrikaner nationalism was socialism for poor Afrikaners and poor whites in general. Because it made sure that all of the things that you need as basic needs are covered for by the state in order to give you a springboard to ensure class mobility. What did African nationalism do? It said, look, and I agree, African nationalism is much wider in scope and is much more inclusive than that exclusive narrow Afrikaner nationalism. But our interpretation in the post-apartheid period was to say, let's create a class, this middle class we're talking about. Yes. But it's not a class in the truest sense, insofar as that it's a, it's a, how do I say it, a reliable, you know, multi-generational layer in the society that has its own political and social identity. It's not there, um, and I think the ANC, to its credit, has created a class of people through employment equity, PEE. You know, and even uh, employment practices in the public service, but is it, but it really hasn't created. It, it's created a class, yes, yes. but it hasn't created an, a class of economic agents. And and what the Africana regime did was to make sure that it's not enough to place people into net, yeah. but you have to create an entire constellation of institutions around that to ensure that you build your hegemony and power in the society. Yeah. You create a false gas so that every month the salary that's paid to that menial worker goes into false gas. The bond that that menial worker needs gets from false gas. If I'm an African entrepreneur and I need concessional funding, the Land and Agricultural Bank is there for me. There are a, ramp- a range of other institutions, the IDC and others, who are able to assist me. We have not done that. wonder, did
1: we throw out the baby with the
2: bathwater? I think we did. Uh, did we throw did. out the baby
1: with the bathwater? Because there were policies there that yeah. made sense, mm. but because of the anger at that point in time.
2: Yeah.
1: And I'm just, you know, we, we're having a conversation. I mean, somebody out there is thinking mm. now um, these two have lost their minds. Yeah.
2: And yeah. collectively so. But did we throw out the baby with the bathwater? Look, I mean, we are warned. Mm-hmm. You know, Oliver Tambo, um, in one of the quotes that often goes around, yeah. encourages you know, the younger leaders in the ANC to even learn from the enemy.
3: Yeah.
2: And, we, and we have a reluctance to do that. If I disagree with you, I'm not mm-hmm. willing to learn from you. You know? Um, because there are certain things that you are doing that are correct. You would not be my, you know, antagonist or enemy if you weren't succeeding at doing certain doing things, something. right? Yeah. And I think we, we did throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I think we must also locate the South African experience in the context of the global political economy. Some of the things the... Uh, National Party was able to do in the 40s and the 50s, were not possible in the 90s yes. due to the shifts in the reconfiguration in the global political economy following the Second World War. And we need to accept that. Um, you know, I mean, let me take for instance the World Trade Organization would never allow the kind of tariff subsidy and non-tariff support extended to the agricultural sector by the apartheid regime for South Africa. They wouldn't allow it we wouldn't be a member, we wouldn't have bilateral agreements, we wouldn't, you know? Mm-hmm. That's one example. But the other one is that there was an ideological shift even among the elites that were driving you know, the apex nationalist organization at the time, the African National Congress, who were starting to be won over to arguments that were saying you need a minimal state intervention in the economy, you need um, all of these things. Now, of course, on that point of the minimal state intervention in the economy, that flies against the socialist leanings of the alliance, mm-hmm. But it also was convenient at the time because apartheid had been such a state heavy model. So in a sense freedom was also about a retreat of the state away from different parts of social and economic life. Mm. But this one, in my view, was an unintended retreat that opened up the state to particular kinds of contestations that we're still dealing with now. Um, And we're dealing with them in a situation in our society and in our communities that is much worse. We we will come back to this issue. But the the, the, I wanna ask you a question. Have we in some way
1: try and recreated the subsidies, you know, the um mm-hmm. the DTIC yeah. has yeah. got some subsidies for farmers, it's mm-hmm. got uh, for production, for all sorts of other things. But and, and, and the bit where I think we threw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. Is the integration bit yes because we have yeah. all of these things they are yeah. there yeah. first and foremost accessing them is a nightmare oh, the, yeah. the, the bureaucracy that oh. goes with them is just unbelievable and then secondly then it's they are uncoordinated mm. when you look at them in actual fact like I always say the South African government is not short of plans but no. it's short no. it's short of leadership yeah.
2: and coordination yeah. Is, yeah. is that the, a true assessment I, I think it's a very true assessment and I think the example you make of incentives, some of the things that were done are possible. Um, But you kind of have to have a creativity to think of them differently. And I argue in the book that one of the areas, so what might have been an incentive during the Mm party regime, you might want to do now via procurement instead of just giving somebody a blank check. Because remember, a lot of the Afrikaner businesses who got those incentives, There was no reciprocal expectation that you are going to expand your operations. You could get for 30 years straight up with no expectation of any reciprocal action and incentive, wage incentive, rail incentive, electricity incentive, all of those things. And that's why by the time, so there's no expectation that you must improve to the point where you can compete globally. Because there must be an entry and exit point, even an incentive. Can't be living off of incentives forever. Um, And what I find interesting was, In South Africa, we didn't learn from that experience, that the moment those Africana industries were exposed to international competition, they all floundered, Mm. because they'd been artificially propped up by all of these measures. Um, And I argue in the book that there are areas of unintended industrial policy. Let me give you some examples. The creation of a black middle class in South Africa has created more domestic work jobs than ever created in the history of this country. We don't think of that as industrial Mm -hmm. policy, right? The fact that you put more black people into work who now need to look after, at a care level, their parents, their children, and all of that stuff, when they would have been in their homes, has now created an entire new sector that might not have been there in the black community. Not a lot of black people had domestics per se, right? That's the first. The second one is, why is it in all of our townships and our villages, there are hardware stores springing up everywhere? Mm -hmm. Why? Why is it when I read the numbers of cash build or even any of the other, yes. you know, infrastructure guys they say a big part that's driving their margin growth is actually coming from the rural market.
1: But before we go why back, go, go, go to that level of what we mm. let's stick it up because me and you we can have a very sure, complex sure.
2: conversation
1: about something yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that requires us to stick it up. Let's go back to the household income of any province. Oh, yeah, sure. But in sure. particular, the household income of, what do they call it, of, of the Eastern Cape. Yes. Because that in itself starts to stack up. From the yes, conversation we no, had sure, about sure. disenfranchising and taking away, and, and what do they call it, and, and dispossession, yeah. to now, what has now become... the income of the households yeah. in, 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 in the Eastern Cape. Mm. And I was shocked when I saw that graph.
2: It was like just high. Uh, I still away. think even stats are say underestimates. Yes. Um, the majority of income to most households in the Eastern Cape comes from social grants. The majority of income for Eastern Cape municipalities comes from grants from national and provincial government. Now that should show us something. Yes. There is no private sector that is meaningful, value adding and employment generating enough in the province, that we can call it a private sector. Now, people might say, well, you've got the automotive sector. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, sure, I get that. But I'm saying now, when I talk about the rural hinterland of the Eastern Cape, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about East London and so on. I'm talking about the overwhelming land mass and territorial space in the Eastern Cape. People do not get employment, uh, income from economic activities. Now, coming back to the point we were talking about policy, the social policy of the country has effectively created now an injection at a household level. And the macro fiscal policy has created an injection to the municipal administration. These things are linked. But the inadvertent or unexpected outcome of that has not necessarily been to create new industry. What it has done is to crowd in a very parasitic form of industry where the money makes a one-way trip into the retail sector as riskless, predictable cash flows. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's not surprising to find Mr. Price saying they think their second half performance of this year might benefit from the back pay of the 350 social relief of distress grant. Mm -hmm. Because they know some of those people are gonna go and spend that money at Mr. Price or pay down some debt at Mr. Mm -hmm. Price. So, So in a sense, what is a good policy? Because we have not monitored and followed the money, has effectively ended up creating cash flows for other people who might not in some cases see themselves as partners in our vision of economic reconstruction in this country. Talking about social grants and your
1: idea of how we could actually use them and reuse them and then restructure them. Because mm. that is an important yes. issue. Yes. Because we, we we cannot continue with just giving them in the money form. Mm. Um, yes. For us in the what do they call it? In the, in the transport sector, we're even talking about um, should we be subsidising uh, the, the operator or yes. the transport or the or, consumer or the, yeah. the what do they call it? Or yeah. the
2: commuter? Yeah. yeah. Now,
1: the, it's an interesting vision. Let's have a bit of a yeah,
2: chat about yeah, that. Yeah, yes. I, I must say, I, do, I don't envy you. In the transport space, the <laughs> debates are much harder. But you see, what this one, for me, I argue in the book, and it's, it's part of these missions. Uh, and the first one, I, I argue, is securing the base. Yes. Um, the Eastern Cape is a paradox. Yes, majority of households are reliant on grants, but almost every household has some livestock. Almost every household has some land parcel. Yet... It's one of the most food insecure provinces in the country. So, your first step in getting economic participation, which might not necessarily look like a job, yeah. is to say to people, how do we produce for our immediate needs? Mm-hmm. But also, how do we assist one another using our common ties of social solidarity in our communities to produce for the market? Mm-hmm. And the first market, you know, if I go and produce yellow maize in my village, I can assure you now, Pana will never buy my yellow maize. Mm. Pana, the feed company, they'll yes. never buy my yellow maize. So which market do I have? And I express stories there of people in Mount Frere who are producing, mm. but all their stuff goes to waste because there's no market. And I argue that to resolve the market access issue, you have to earmark a cashless component in the social ground. Let's, let's use the 350 mm. as an example. Say tomorrow we want to increase the 350 to 600. Mm. We might say, let's add 50 Rand more, 400 is the cash component, and then you have a 200 Rand uh, voucher component. And how you design that voucher component might get you the market outcomes you're looking for. So how do you design it? You say, in the 200, this money can only be spent on local producers within a 200 kilometer radius, Mm Um, And these producers must be registered with the old municipal markets or even local markets in our villages. And on the day of the payday, they bring their wares to the pay point. And you get your 400, you get your voucher as well. Mm -hmm. Now, if I want with that 200 to buy five-day-old chicks Mm -hmm. that will grow into chickens and I'll do whatever, I might think of doing that with the 400 But I probably won't if I've got the option of the voucher. voucher. I'm gonna go and take that to the person who is operating there. They'll give me the two chicks, maybe in a paraffin or whatever, and I still get to keep the 400 in cash. And I use that to buy in places where that voucher cannot assist me. But what the voucher does, once I've collected it, I go back to the government and then they give me cost plus a particular margin on the products that I have. So if I've got five tons, I know at least one ton of that yellow maize Mm -hmm. will go into the market that is enabled by the social grant. It gives me access to a market. It allows me to be confident enough tomorrow to plant. Mm -hmm. And when I plant, I'm gonna need labor. And that's where we start to crowd in this kind of economic activity, rather than making a one-way trip to a mass national retailer, Mm -hmm. which only has a distribution center there, but has no real production or value addition happening in that area.
1: The second bit of it that you make quite a big point of, and I was always shocked at the amount of money that is returned by, by the Eastern Cape government or oh, and the infrastructure. Oh, and municipalities as well. Oh. And, 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 and I'm shocked about it, because if there's one province that
2: needs infrastructure, infrastructure. Is, is that one. What is going on in this? All problems in the Eastern Cape are infrastructure problems. Even this thing I'm talking about now, yes. that example might fail because of infrastructure issues. It might fail because of difficulty in access roads to get your produce to the market. Now, on infrastructure, I argue I call it securing the home. Yes. Um, and of course, in Ambit, the scope of it is much wider than just residential construction. But I argue that there's a very interesting phenomenon that happens in rural provinces. It's more pronounced in Limpopo, I must say, than in the Eastern Cape, but you start to see it in the Eastern Cape. We often say, mm. which means we love bricks, yes. right? And this culture of home improvement, yes. especially in the rural areas. Of the Invanda. Yes, in yes, Vanda And we're starting to see it now slowly <laughs> yes. in the Eastern Cape and in, you know, KZN. Yes. But, I mean, Limpopo is the, is the place where mm. you see this in most stock fashion. What has happened is there are a lot of immigrant traders, mm. primarily Somali, Pakistani uh, nationals, coming from the third world who have recognized that actually, those migrant flows we're talking about. And in the Eastern Cape, there's primary two corridors.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: There is the three, maybe. Uh, there is the Cape Town corridor. Mm-hmm. There's the Urban Eastern Cape corridor, so PE. Yeah, 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 and then there's the Joburg corridor. Mm-hmm. What is common a- across all of these different corridors is that people come and work in Johannesburg, send money home mm-hmm. for renovations and improvements and to build beautiful homes there because that's our retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Some of us don't put money in annuities. We put money to make sure that my life can be comfortable when I go back to the village to Mm -hmm. go and retire. And a lot of immigrant nationals then realized, oh, there's a market here for bricks, for concrete, for roof trusses, for timber-related stuff, for steel, for aluminium, and have set up in every village you go to now, there's a hardware store. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a failure in understanding from our own government, because all of that could have been operated by the state. Mm. We have Sandral, for instance. The material needs of Sandral fine, open it up to the market, they create national rules. But surely, every municipality, especially in a place like, a, like the Eastern Cape, should have had an infrastructure hub, where you choose where you play. Yeah. Do I play in the timber value chain? making you know, roof trusses, making treated timber and whatever, or do I play downstream on the building side of things? Yes. And we have not had an intentional localization strategy around that. I think it's welcome now, and it's only coming now I guess, that for instance the government has designated cement for public infrastructure projects. Yes. But what we should be doing is to extend the designation to critical inputs into household residential construction in the rural areas. So that even if a Somali trader is selling there, there is an obligation that that timber is coming from forests that are in the country. That aluminium is coming, some local content percentage of it, from South Africa. Because one of the issues we're seeing now as a result of this residential boom in the rural areas um, is also a rise in the import intensity of the materials that are used in construction. And we're losing an opportunity.
1: Now, as we look at that and we look back at... You know the border towns, yes. uh, you know the, the Queen and and all of that isn 't there an opportunity and this is where there 's this functionality in policy where yeah, yeah. we, we 've got the, the assets we have the, we have the policy framework mm. to can make this work. Mm. But somehow the district development model is not yeah. really
2: kicking into gear and firing yeah. on all cylinders. Yeah. Look, it's still early days. I mean, my, <laughs> people often say, hey, Wena, you are the biggest champion of this DBM. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I, I think it resolves this issue of coordination you were raising earlier. Yes. Um, and it's still early days, of course. But I think you're right. That if, if mm. or even uh, if we use an example out in Limpopo, um, one of the former homelands, uh, one of the former vendor homelands, industrial parks, mm. is there, and you know you've got a residential construction boom. Surely we can pick out two or three critical inputs into residential Elements, construction, yes. and we also know that every year, and I make the example in the book, of what I call ventilated pit toilets. Please. Every district municipality in the Eastern Cape that is a water service authority that has a function looking at sanitation. Mm knows every year they need to procure VIP toilets, as it's called. But every year they act as if they're discovering the market for the first time. So I procure in August this year from TEPOR. Next year I'm going to go out on tender again and act as if there are other people now who can, you know, give me this thing. And in all likelihood if you look at the bid documents, it's always the same people who bid. Why are we not creating a strategic thing that disincentivizes middle persons disincentivizes imports by saying, okay, here's a market of eight producers. For 10 years, we are going to support you and say we are assuring you you have a market with us for 10 years. In return, go and raise capital to build a factory. So that you don't bring these things with a truck. Go and raise the capital Located Quindustria in will give you better than expected rents, will give you a zoning application, will give you a discount on your property rates. Go and create a factory there. And Tina will, t- will give you an offtake for the next 10 years of a specified amount. Of course, you can produce more and sell to the market. That's your baby. But what ends up happening now? We micro parcel projects. So because I'm in now on this project, I don't know if next year I'm going to get in again. What do I do? I put in a premium. I make it so expensive that it takes up so much of the small budget of this municipality that can't raise its own money. Yet the municipality with that budget could have effectively created a taxpayer tomorrow, and they didn't. Because remember, if that factory goes there, tomorrow they are paying you as the municipality.
1: But I have this understanding I mean, of, of mm. what do they call it? I mean, we, we, we are having interesting conversations yes, with, yeah. with the cities as, 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 as I sure. look at what do they call it, as, at expanding the house. Yes, yeah. And I'm saying, let's talk about land, land yeah. where I locate the stations. Mm. And in that land that way I locate the, sta- the sure. stations, um, give me the land. And in turn, you will get back rates. Exactly. Because people yeah. will put up uh, uh, buildings yeah. there and
2: yeah. I will develop some buildings and there. You're and you're a hub. You, bring, you draw in no. economic activity. The, yeah. the,
1: the municipality says, no, you mustn't go there. Um, I want you to go in that space where uh, I already have infrastructure. I say, but that's not big enough. So so, so you have to understand that. And, and, and I want to talk about something that is important before we leave the, the district yes, development sure, sure. model. And, and the challenges that we sit with you know, national government. Yeah. And then from national government, then cockta exists, and then it suddenly moves to where, like, suddenly yeah. you've got the local sphere. Sure. But you've got the provinces that are created by the Provinces Act, and... In ten, there is this dysfunctionality this where yeah. national and local um, talk to each other, but province—it's so sometimes keep province, by the way. There yeah, you go. Yeah. It's <laughs> not a
2: segue, but how do you then yeah. implement policy? Yeah. Look, I mean, this is why the implementation has been so fragmented. Yes. We speak in South Africa and we say we've got good policies, mm-hmm. but we can't implement them. Part of it is that—is that you've got a quasi-federal system that was not an ideal system, but is the outcome of negotiation. Yes. If you. Go back to 1994 and you think about the National Party, the Democratic Party, which is now the DAE, and the IFP. All of them were making this call for a federalist arrangement. So this is a compromise, the Mm -hmm. system that we have. But to this point on the DDM and your interface with the municipalities, part of the problem is also that there is aversion to evidence-based decision-making in government. Mm -hmm. So if we take human settlements, for instance, It's shocking that if you look at the district development models and the one plans that are developed, that a one plan of a place like Nelson Mandela Bay, for instance, Mm -hmm. can flatly say we have no reliable migration data to inform future human settlements and bulk service requirements. So then on what basis are you planning? If you don't know now how many people are in informal settlements and based on your migration patterns historically and and in the contemporary phase, how it might look like, that data is not there. So then all of it is subjective discretion, yes. which is sometimes infused with politics and patronage politics because if I locate the extension of the How train or the BRT mm. into a ward that is my stronghold, I have a likelihood tomorrow of emerging. Irrespective of whether I've created an infrastructure here that has no other roads that lead to yes. it. So, so there is that disjoint. That we started, and I, and I argue that it's going to become more fractious going forward. But how we resolve some of those issues is to use something like the district development model, not only to make sure that government works better, but also that we have a common way of crowding in non-state actors. Mm. I mean, when was the last time we had a triple P like the Hautri, of that scale yes. and of that ability to crowd in alternative investments? You know, when I was a varsity student, we used to go to Rosebank. Rosebank is not what it was then, and you can't run away from the fact that it's the Hau train that has made it that. That has changed the. That was a catalytic intervention. Yes. Now, when was last time we had a catalytic triple P of that scale?
1: It's coming. Hau train two is coming now. No,
2: but you can't only wait for the Hau train, guys. I mean,
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know. But let's talk about um, the green shoots. You know, you, you yes, can talk yeah. about the Eastern Cape and then end up just crying when you're talking about it because, like, no, they are, are green shoots. Let's talk about the green shoots, shoots yeah. and, and and maybe probably the the first of the green shoots, and I'll come back to the yeah. to, to the agro processing, the, the IPPs and the they call, yes, and the procurement. Yes. yes. Um, but you, you also argue something else. The, 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 the cyclic nature of IPP procurement is creating problems. Oh, is. Let's talk about oh, that. And, oh, and, and, and then they, they call it the diversification of the Eastern yes. Cape economy yes. and going into the, the, the independent power producers. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Look, I mean, I think, I think if people need to understand the history of the Eastern Cape first before we get into this diversification yes. story, the Eastern Cape is primarily a agriculture, tourism, automotive and labor exporting yes. province. That's his job, that, that's the economic character of the province historically. And a big part even of the provincial master plans has been how do we diversify the economy, get more foreign exchange earners, export capability and so on in, in the province. Um, and I argue that one of the new areas that has emerged has been the independent power producers, in particular wind technology investments in the province. I think by bid window four, the Eastern Cape probably had the overwhelming majority compared to other provinces of wind investments, yeah. um, but all of those wind investments, I guess, slightly scattered, but a lot of them concentrated on that strip between you know uh, I would say East London, maybe right through to St. Francis, yes. going past that. Um And there's a lot of potential there, not only during the construction phase, but even in the other and of course, not a job heavy thing. Yeah. But I think where the opportunities are, are not just in the construction, of course, in the ongoing maintenance of the thing, but are in upstream possibilities. Yeah. So if you take a, a wind farm or a turbine, yeah. there are very complex parts to a turbine, yeah. but then there are also mundane parts that can be made. For instance, a steel tower or a concrete tower
1: yeah.
2: can be made. The concrete base. Yeah, yeah, farm. yeah. Mm. Uh, the balance of plants, so connecting the wind turbine to a substation yeah. and transform and so on. South Africa has capability there. Yes. The complex parts are probably in this control system, which sits in the Nassau at the back of the wind farm there. And that that can even be controlled all the way in in Denmark.
3: Mm.
2: Now, this is an opportunity for the Eastern Cape, which, by the way, has such a preponderance of educational institutions. Mm. I mean, how many universities are there? Rhodes, NMU, Forte, Wusu, four four universities Mm. in a rural province like the Eastern Cape. There is scope now to have an entire innovative hub for wind energy in that province for the continent. Because there are projects springing up across the continent from as wide a field as Kenya, right through to Namibia here next door, where some of this intellectual property in joint ventures can be harnessed to not only position the Eastern Cape just because it has wind, but to also say, well, this place also has significant technical know-how, right through from the university to the TVET college to the technical high school, so that even the most complex parts of operating, constructing, and putting together a wind farm and ensuring that it reticulates electricity mm. are within the domain of this place, and the Eastern Cape has some first mover advantage there. It's the same, by, uh, by the way, I might add, as um, you know, the massive challenges in uh, digital connectivity.
4: Yes.
2: Uh, you know, even the urban parts of the Eastern Cape have horrible connectivity. Mm. You know, uh, during COVID, we had the opportunity of doing broadcasts from wherever you were. And I had a chance to sort of compare to a few different places insofar as connectivity is concerned. And it becomes clear that even the most well-resourced parts of the province are still lagging behind on connectivity. The implication of that is simple. Is that all of the jobs that require just a functional uh, uh, internet connection from a smallest micro job to a call center job to a job as a coder or AI, whatever, uh, all of the jobs that Philippines, India, and others are recipients of as mm-hmm. offshore opportunities are foreclosed and constrained in the Eastern Cape because the underlying infrastructure is not there. And I say when we, if we want to secure the future, we have to make sure that the underlying infrastructure uh, that can feed not just the energy sector that's emerging, but also digitally enabled sectors in the economy is going to be critical.
1: This is quite interesting, and as we lead into agro processing, because w- yeah, what yeah. you're raising about the issue of education and, 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 and the in... Mm. It, it's always been strange that a lot of the ideas um, there's an idea called processing and yes, the use yeah. of what do they call it of algae to produce fuel yeah, yeah. Uh, that comes from NMU, yeah. uh, and yeah. you're going, but that is consumed by consulting companies. In Johannesburg. Oh in the US. Yes. Mm. And it's never ever it never ever is made into a what do they call it? A a, a business yeah. locally in yeah. um which is the the, the curious case of mm. milk production and processing, mm. which the Eastern Cape produces a third of the milk in what do they call it mm. in, in the country. Yeah, yeah. But does not think of processing it further. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's sad. I mean, like, so, so the Eastern Cape is one of the largest raw milk producers. Yes. Uh, and actually, even the processors in the Eastern Cape are saying to me that there is scope to expand towards the Eastern side. So Port St. John's right through to Port Edward. Yes, More like dairy the production there, right? And if you were to exploit that side, you would have a much larger dairy sector than the Western Cape, even.
1: Yes, because there is much more water up there Exactly,
2: yes. exactly Now, and Whereas in the, eastern, in the western Cape, large part it's saturated, yes. right? all of the dairy producing areas are kind of used for that purpose um, And it's not only dairy I'm, I'll also add something on citrus yes. which is a big export of the province Yes, in Ado and, yes, yes, Ado, Kirkwood and mm. all of those areas Now, it's interesting, the, the dairy one because there's been a lot of exit by traditional family owned farms and so mm. on, consolidation, big players coming in with money and so on mm. But the Eastern Cape, and I analyze this in the book, I compare the raw milk production to their export earnings. Mm. And it shows that the value of their export earnings is nowhere near the top two position they hold in so far as raw milk is concerned. Yes. Or top one in some years. I think they're 50. Uh, yeah, somewhere there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Now, if you think about that, what it means is that a lot of the milk is produced for the local market so it's milk amasi, mm-hmm. and a few other things just for local consumption mm-hmm. but all of the things you can export with, yes because remember milk is a is a what do they call it, a durable non-durable mm-hmm. product perishable, perishable, perishable. right yeah. so effectively all of the things you have to do are to add value to the milk in a way that makes it survive
3: mm-hmm.
2: so it might be you know ultra heated milk long life it might be cream cheeses it might be yogurts All of the high value segments Mm. in local and export markets are not serviced from the Eastern Cape. So surprisingly Johannesburg and Gauteng have higher export earnings into say Botswana Mm. of dairy products than the Eastern Cape does, yet by raw milk production have nothing. And that's a massive opportunity because it's part of a labor intensive forms of production, right through from the horticulture to what feeds Mm. the cows, all the way through to the entire, you know, uh, value addition process that happens. There. And I make an example of a cheese factory out in East London, which yes. is the outcome of, uh, you know, partnership between uh, uh, Eastern Cape-based entity and the German, you know, uh, uh, cheese equipment yes. manufacturer.
1: I still haven't uh, eaten a bag after reading that line. In
2: oh, you haven't? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, because all the bagger. cheese comes from New Zealand. Yes, I, I am mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm both yeah. getting beggars. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the interesting fact there was all of the processed cheese you find in your burger, in your pizza, and all of that, Mm. until fairly recently, uh, would have been coming from New Zealand. Yet we produce so much milk, we have the conditions to do it here, but we don't have the investment in capital. Mm -hmm. So people invest in real estate in the Eastern Cape. People invest in finance in the Eastern Cape. But very few people in South Africa and abroad invest in equipment, provide working capital to industrialists to add value to the things that are produced because think about how much value comes from somebody at the Fort Hair Dairy Trust Farm yes. of having now a new source of demand for their milk. Of now having somebody sitting in Kucha from the dairy group who's yes. buying all of this stuff um, at scale.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It changes not just that position of that place as an academic demo farm, but it changes its role in the entire economy of Alice. And and I think for, for me, that's these are the kind of economic things we can do, rather than stop doing small piecemeal projects. Uh, Allow people to produce what they are producing, allow people to rear the livestock they rear, but then be able to create a stimulus downstream in the aggregation of that produce. It is an interesting concept because, in essence,
1: we're going back to the idea of the Cooperatives,
2: yes yes that were there
1: yeah. you know when i grew yeah. up my grandmother corporasi. yes yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my grandmother sure. used to tell me is that uh, she used to plow and yeah. you know i used to drive the truck that day, uh, mm. to the yeah, yeah. you understand and, 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 but somehow those structures have fallen apart and yes. i'm saying because uh, we, we thrown, thought we we're smart right? yes yeah, <laughs> uh, we've thrown uh, uh, the, out there the, uh, they call it the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. now what what, what the, what the dairy and sunday yes. uh, projects there's also a a, a, a an upstream benefit yes. to a lot of what do they call it which actually comes from a a thought uh,
2: yes. or, or from the culture of of yes. leasing
1: cows yeah, yeah yes. yes
2: so you know it's so interesting this whole cow leasing story um mm. so i mean all of us you know grew up in model c environment yes. you know um, and in a way it creates a A break, right? With um, even understanding social forms of institution building Mm -hmm. in the villages. And I remember um, in one of the Kosa classes, they had this um, in primary school already, they had this uh, idiom, Mm Kosa idiom, and uh, so it goes which, you know, I don't like to translate, but, but the whole point of it is that a leased cow. Yeah. When you milk it, you always have to look over your shoulder yeah. because the owner could come at any come stage. And, be, yes. uh, and I remember sitting at home asking my father, "Like, what is this Norma story?"
3: Yeah.
2: And my grandfather, mm. uh, so one of his uncles, was in the room, and he was like, "Why? What do you know about Norma, whatever?" Yeah. And he waxes lyrical for the next hour yeah. talking about the system.
3: Yeah.
2: And what it was was a system that said, "Tepo has many dairy cows." Yeah. I only have one cow, mm. it has no milk. Maybe I have a bull or whatever. Yeah. But I need to make sure there's amasi for my children at home. There's milk for Umtogo in the morning and mm-hmm. all of that. And what does Tsepo do? Tsepo will lease to me a cow. And on condition that I maintain the upkeep of that cow, but I also return it at some stage. Mm-hmm. So in a way it's like seed capital to say, and then I have a right if that cow births, uh, you know, a calf, mm. to own the calf. Yes. Right? So in a sense, it says, let me give you the start. Yes. And in the case of uh, the dairy group there that you mentioned and uh, the and others, mm. th- they've been really instrumental in saying in places like Shiloh, which also has its own yes. very fascinating history as a Moravian mission, um, Forte Dairy Trust, Noha, mm. uh, and and there was a system that said, let's take the most Quality herds that we have yeah. within the dairy farming group that that gives uh, uh, milk to the Kucha Dairy, which mm. is now dairy group, and so on. Uh, and then, as part of changing the quality of the herds in the former Sky and the Trans Sky, enorma. Mm. So let's go and lease these, you know, very uh, uh, productive herds uh, to these farmers. And that, in so doing, we are not only imparting a new gene pool, but it also comes with technical forms of assistance and support because you need to produce to a particular kind of specification and quality. Now, one of the biggest challenges that even those dairy farmers are raising is the quality of roads to get there. Because you can imagine, I'm fearing a a perishable here. Yeah. And fine, you know, the milk might move and whatever, but if it rains and there's no bridge, I can't go and pick up that day. So part of it has to say, what are these guys doing and how do we then use the budget of that local authority to complement what is happening there? Yeah. So how do we take the Inokum Kichima local municipality's budget to fix that road from the Shiloh you know, uh, uh, milk milkshed to the road that goes to uh, uh, Port Elizabeth? Yeah. Um, as part and parcel of saying we recognize that you have taken this step, let's enable you even further. So if you are moving, one million liters a week. We want you now to move five million liters because you can do so in a much more convenient fashion.
1: But that is that integration and coordination I'm telling you about. You see, the, like, the problem is all that these people in industry, yes.
2: there's a deep distrust between industry and government. So I argue in the book what's the point of having a structure like Nedlax sitting Angelico Avenue in Rosebank mm-hmm. if it can't create mini Nedlax? at a local level, that are effectively collaborative and consultative spaces that bring together labor, business, um, community and civil structures, mm. and the government.
1: Now, as we move forward, and mm. now we start talking about, you know, we've spoken about the securing the base, sure, sure. and then securing the, 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 uh, the home, mm. and then now we're talking about securing the future. Yes, sir. And the securing the future in itself is a very complex mm. mission. That goes beyond a whole lot of other things. Because yeah. in, in, in the wake, I used to be in consulting, you know, one yeah. of the things that I, we, we, we always knew, I'd be sitting there and say, you know, just after 2000, uh, uh, um, 2008, and I was asking, are we ever going to get another big project mm. just after the mines mm, and sure. shut down? And, yeah. and somebody just said to me, this is a very highly liquid market. There's so much money in this country, it's unbelievable. And I was like, mm. And they said, in the banks. And now suddenly, <laughs> it became clear yeah, to me yeah, no. at that point in time yeah. that this is interesting. Mm. Um, yeah. How is that even possible that yeah. a
2: country that... The big money is not in the d- real economy. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah.
1: How, how is it that, you know, when we're securing the future beyond mm. building the infrastructure and everything else, is there any bigger restructuring? Because the, 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 the kind of restructuring we've gone yeah. into in terms of the financial financialization mm. of the market in itself.
2: It's creating a problem. Mm. No, for sure. Look, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head on one side of restructuring. Uh, finance has to be a terrain and a site of struggle around the future economy that we want.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, especially the decisions on where finance allocates capital. So, let me give you an example. We've been running for the last 18 months a project in the Eastern Cape putting Wi-Fi in public spaces.
3: Yeah.
2: No bank will touch us with a badge pull.
3: Mm.
2: Um, No DFI will want to touch us for a manner of reasons because you're doing something, it's a big leap, right? Mm. And so our culture of hoarding money and finance, insurance, real estate has also created an aversion to investments that don't meet your hurdle rate. Mm. So unlike you go to the US, people will fund or even give pre-IDEA funding For something that they feel is a game changer, mm. in this country we don't have that. So that's that's the one area. The second area is we do need in how we think about the securing the future story. Mm. And I mentioned the energy issue and you know digital connectivity, but it even expands to other areas. Yes. Um, we do need some way of embedding. You know they say data, and uh, not the data on your phone yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But data is what still was to the 20th century industrial model, what that is now to our economy. Yeah. And if we don't capture that market for right through from the data center to the issues of privacy, resolving that through to the issues of being able to use big data and analytical frameworks to be able to plan future infrastructure, we're going to fail. Um, um,
1: isn't that the big market In the, in, in the Eastern Cape If course. you were to look at the Eastern Cape and say If I yeah. go there and then I mean the, the data is there yeah. You just need to have the right way of harvesting it while pro- uh, 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 protecting mm. privacy yeah. and making sure that POPIA is in, in yes. intact. Yes. Um, just about everybody in the state, Eastern Cape has a cell phone. Yes. And then and in essence, by yeah. their nature, you can geolocate anybody. Yes. When you've got a cell phone in your pocket. Yeah. As Dita is sitting there with his phone, uh, we know where he is, and I can send a, a, a scout missile to go and take him out. Mm. But it's in, in essence, the issue is, isn't that the economy on the doorstep. Like literally when you look at it and saying, but the Eastern Cape needs somebody to be able to bring its data together.
2: Yeah, I think it is. But I mean also you see Brantsepo, the issue is this when I talk about securing the future and the data, you're right. All of it is there. But think about this funny issue. Every three years, municipalities in the Eastern Cape go and fill out an indigency issue. You know this free basic services was a big issue in Tembisa a few weeks ago. Every year they go and fill it out. Mm. I remember asking a municipal official and said, How much money do you spend on this thing? And they were like, mm. No, we spend three million yeah. it once in a while to go and do it. And we then another two million to ensure there's integrity in the data, capture the data and whatever. And I said, yeah. okay, fine. And I asked him, Why aren't you making any proxy assumptions about yeah. this data? And he says, What do you mean? I say, Well, I can tell you already if you gave me the following data sets which households are indigenous. Mm -hmm. If you gave me school enrollment data Mm
3: -hmm.
2: in, um, you know, no fee schools. Mm -hmm. If you gave me um, data from SASA on who is earning a grant Mm -hmm. and the household data they give you. And then the third one is I can also give you data based on cell phone signal data and based on how much people are spending recharging that will tell you that people are indigent. I could go further, I could give you bank account data, I could give you all of these things. And I said, as a state, there are data sets here that you have access to. Mm -hmm. Um, But your starting point is that you are not doing that analysis first and then saying the secondary part might be a cheaper exercise of just going to verify. You wanna first spend the five million when you could've spent 500,000 on just the Mm -hmm. verification. So part of this designing and securing the future is about smart government. It's about ensuring that uh, we are not left behind in the greening of production. Mm-hmm. Renewable energy comes in there strongly. Digitization of work, digitization of you know homes, uh, communities, and spaces. Uh, you know, It's so funny, you hear municipalities in the Eastern Cape speak about smart cities. Mm. No, we want a smart city by 2030. Okay, you want a smart city by 2030, but your electricity infrastructure is 80 years old.
3: Mm.
2: It was aimed at servicing a small you know, settler colonial population. Yes. You've now got a population six times the size of that. Don't you oh. want to start there? You look at Port Alfred and you... <sighs> it was meant The water the, issue. Yes. Oh, of course you Oh. You know, I mean, and, and and the other issue is, why do our projects take so long? Take Port Alfred. Yeah. Port Alfred, there's a project there aimed at combination of social housing, bonded homes, and I think a uh, mix of RTP, FLISP, that kind of thing. Apset Development Company comes together with the office of the Premier. Mm. Um, They decide we're going to build this project. That was in 2010. Mm. We went there doing field work a few weeks ago. They are still building the sanitation pump mains and station that will service that area. So there's no... There's no bricks uh, construction. They're still building the connecting service. Yeah, yeah they still
1: doing yes. bulk. Yes. 12 years later? 12 years later. Th- this, this is unbelievable. But <laughs> that's economy <laughs> so, on your doorstep. Yeah, I think the most important point about this book is that it brings to life things yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily um, look at in general. Sure. I want to, you know, the, the before we get to the questions online, you'd yeah. be amazed. One and sure, a half sure. is gone. <laughs> I, I hope the questions aren't too. Uh... <laughs> We're not yet there. Yeah, We're not yeah. yet there. Now, we speak about something that we, 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 we you know, when I started off, I, I brought up the issue of Bernard Boy saying it's plenty. You know, yeah. uh, buy another Hennessy, uh, and 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 it's about the thoughts of how, you know, debt mm. and. And this hasn't changed. I mean, for years yeah. you look at it. Uh, when December comes, the houses get painted, mm-hmm. and you can literally see as you drive down past KatKat and yeah, uh, yeah. down past the Terremen KatKat. There, and you look at this, and then the house, are there, the the colourful houses down yeah. there, uh, they've now been refreshed and everything else. And you come know, December, this, come <laughs> December, you know, <laughs> the ink is coming yeah, and everything exactly, else. Exactly, exactly. Now, but this is a consumption based on future innings. Yes. Yes. And by its nature, it's not something new. It's linked to the original problem that we discussed.
2: Exactly. Exactly. uh, The Glengarry Act. You know, it's so interesting. I came into this piece when I started writing it with a hypothesis. My hypothesis was that, no, there's a new phase now, this issue of debt. Yes. And I wrote it and I wrote it and I wrote it. And then midway, I realized, actually, what I'm writing, what is different Mm. from what's there in the archive? And I realized, no, no, the mechanism is different. Yes. In essence, it's exactly the same. So I like the point you make that all of the consumption, wedding, kitty, cars, mm. and I think we must distinguish, there are certain pieces of consumption that are critical to place making, identity making, yeah. um, and even production. Mm. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to take debt for those things. Yes. Right. I think there's a measurable and observable return that comes from that. But I think my challenge there that I'm raising is around conspicuous consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, I mentioned the context of Kanye West in that because what we do is to use debt for conspicuous consumption. Mm-hmm. So we use debt to buy things that signal to others, not mm-hmm. because of their use value, you rich. but signal appearance-wise mm-hmm. that actually hey, this guy has a lot of money, mm-hmm. and therefore I must accord him particular kinds of respect. And this is why. In an economy that is de-industrializing with no jobs, Mm. that we sometimes get shocked when we can't rationalize why people will go and choose crime. And I argue that in some cases, leave aside the criminal Mm. intent and just leave aside that, Mm. right? But there's something about a society that respects you not for who you are, but what you have. That entrenches something in the ideas of young people, in particular young men in a Mm. patriarchal society. If I'm only gonna afford you respect because of money and what you have, Mm. then do not be surprised when my psychosocial need to be acknowledged, recognized, and seen cannot be met because I can't find a job, Mm. not because there's anything wrong with me, but there's just no jobs. And then when I decide to go and steal, the first thing I do is to blow that money because I want to fill that compulsive psychosocial need mm-hmm. to be recognized and seen. That's the first thing. The second thing is debt also is seen in the politics of nationalism, as I said, mm-hmm. African nationalism, as part and parcel of creating this new middle class. Now think about how you know um, global consulting firms speak about Africa rising.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: A lot of that discourse was also found here in South Africa in yes. the 2000s. Everyone was talking about black diamonds, mm. and in the context of that, it was talking about them as a consumptive market yes. rather than a as a class of people that are producing stuff. Mm. Um, and so the struggle then among firms and different branches of capital became: how do I get a bigger chunk of that wallet? Yes. And everything you see around us—I could walk outside now. Everything is saying to me: spend, 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 spend. spend. Right? Because the entire economic system is built around this kind of conspicuous, crass forms of consumption that go over and above one's material and primordial needs. And I argue in the book that it's not just an innocent phenomenon, it's not that uh, you like to spend because you're a bad person, or you like to spend because you're not good with money, no. It's a system that in this current phase of capitalism allows for redistribution without distribution. So you can m- give people the impression that you are paying them 20,000 because they can access credit for 20,000 while paying them 5,000 Rand and still protect your profit share.
1: I will tell you what a friend of mine told me. Mm. So I'm asking him, he was coming to my office. My office is like right in the middle of the entire system. Sure. So they made rent. Yeah. I said to him, this why did you drive here? I mean, you could have just gone to uh, Some something. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, just taking the other they mm. call the train here, mm. uh, and you would have gotten here on that, mm. you know, and and he said something simple to me, mm. and he said to me, "Tsebo, understand one thing. there uh, was no car. Leave me alone for a while. Uh, let me enjoy. Let me get used it. to <laughs> it. He just yeah, understand? Yeah. The same way, every you of mine asked him I said to him." Why do you guys in government like using titles so much? Just leave us just leave us alone no, and then let us enjoy our titles. But uh, so this so becomes true. the argument because no you 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 are looking at it from a you know, micro and macroeconomics mm. perspective and saying debt is an issue and also other things, but as Kalanga is I mean
2: it's the same thing Zekes Bantwini said, right? Yeah. So they say they ask Zekes, um, why, why is it that even with the biggest money you have As black people, you want to splash it. And and white people, Mm. you know, will live in a massive mansion but be driving at Taz and shopping Mm. at Ackerman's, you know. Uh, And he he said, which I found so insightful, he says, White people in this country, by virtue of being white, have a badge of value. You are assumed to be competent, you are assumed to be sharp on the money until you prove yourself otherwise. Mm. Whereas as black people, I need to prove myself before I even open my mouth. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm never going to be seen as a human being outside of what I have. So it gives me pleasure to have the guy who's the beggar on the street saying, ah, oh, ngamla, ah, oh, mlungu, ah, oh, ankelo, whatever. But if I was driving around in an old Datsun, it's just like, hand out. So, so, so I think there's a big issue that we realize The money discussion in this sense is not an economic Mm -hmm. question. And I think the toolkit of economics traditionally defined is unable to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's why in the book I draw then on psychology. I draw on other elements, sociology, to try and explain what might manifest as an economic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But is a psychosocial phenomenon. You know? Yes, to um, consume is human. Yeah, yeah. Show me. Huh? Sh- to consume no, is human. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, and <laughs> the more and more, after I wrote the book, I see uh, it everywhere now. I went to a funeral um, in the village of Albang uh, a mm-hmm. few weeks ago. Uh, and you sit, of course, after the funeral is done, we chill, we relax, mm-hmm. you know. And at every turn, <laughs> yeah there is a recognition even by the people who are living in very dehumanizing conditions that their path to humanity is access to the things that are ostensibly being consumed and used by those who, who they deem as human. There you go. So they deem Tsepo as human because Tsepo came in driving an SUV mm. and if Tsepo is drinking that thing and mm. I'm chilling here, even if I've got something I want there, mm. but I must go and drink what Tsepo is drinking so that I can at least have my 10 seconds of fame in the limelight of humanity. Mm.
1: The consume is human.
2: I so, so it's not, I, mm, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it's not a material thing. You know, um, if you want to show me someone's psychological state of being and mm. mind, show me their bank statement. Mm. Show me the frequency of what they spend. Mm. You know, the, the data we're talking mm. about. Show me, you know, where they spend their money in relation to what they say they feel their money psychology is. Mm. Then you have found the psychosocial compulsions that that has. then you have a clear understanding but there's yeah. a
1: question i have for you before we go to the to the online question yes this financialization that is occurring yeah, yeah at the back of this debt that we've created and then the reconfiguring of the disposition logic mm-hmm. because remember the debt in itself is you know
2: part of risk, risk,
1: is, yeah like it's part of all yeah, of that yeah. and, and 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 but aren't we you know, cutting our nose to spite our face. Mm. When large corporations that used to produce and they spend money on producing now have gone more into the bed where it's more a financial company mm. than it is actually a company that produces something. Mm. And, and this, this, I found it a bit disturbing. I mean, when you're talking about the Lewis Group mm. and how a large part of their income yeah. now no more comes from. They affect through where they used to make furniture. Mm. And it's, it's a brand that is known by, by, what do they call it? I'm trying to remember the payoff line.
2: Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the airs. I t- thought of it actually when I no was writing it. So, so, yeah. so
1: now, I'm, and, and I'm, I'm maybe trying to understand. Yes, I understand. It's mm. diversification. That, and it's, it's, I, you know, I, I, I used to be in, you know, what do they call it in private yeah. business? And I understand yeah. that diversification is an important part. Mm. But we're not creating jobs. Yes. Yeah. and we are creating this consumptive uh, nation mm. that does not produce yeah. and even those who used to produce the no it longer came produce. from the you know, mm. uh, apartheid era no more produce and instead yeah. of them branching out and then taking up space at, at, yeah. at, at, at you know Kandastria or, yes, uh, uh, yeah. or in Babilehi or mm. in Quindastria or something of that sort and then making small parts there and then moving them somewhere else, mm. I have now gone into the financial markets.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, aren't yeah. it, we a, a, a bubble waiting to best? Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> I think there are many bubbles at the moment. But this is a phenomenon, um, and the more I think about it, I think this is true. It's not a phenomenon that started here, it's actually a, a phenomenon in the UK and America. Mm that started following the OPEC oil crisis in the 1970s, early 1970s, where what you ended up happening, and you often hear Americans saying, we exported jobs to Asia. Yes. um, Is that you ended up having this class of what were called corporate raiders. And the corporate raiders introduced this idea of primacy of the shareholder. Mm. And you do any and everything that returns the maximum value to the shareholder. Mm. And that incentivized firms to no longer be firms that produced things and became corporate citizens and community with their workers, their customers, and so on. But now they became these effective you know, slot machines for shareholders. Yeah. And that type of culture has a particular character in South Africa. Mm-hmm. If you think about where we come from, we had sanctions in South Africa. Yes. You had massive centralization of capital in the mining energy and you know, other sectors of the economy and late industrial uh, sectors as well. But those industrialists couldn't export that capital because of the sanctions. Yeah. So they ended up buying each and every firm in the entire economy. That's why SAB, for instance, come 1994, would have even had travel agencies and all manner of other things in their stable mm. because there was nowhere else where you could take the money to go earn a return. So you had to buy up your entire mm. local economy. And that's why the South African economy on depth and sophistication of its capital markets is one of the best in the world. Yet we also have the highest unemployment and inequality in the world. So come 1994, and right up to where we are now in 2022, South African capitalism, in order to achieve higher than risk-free returns, Mm -hmm. no longer needs warm bodies. And in a way, we've come full circle from roads. Yes. Remember roads, gives us kandapondo, poll taxes, and dog taxes even, mm. to release and effectively compel us off of the land mm. to go and work in the mines and on the farms mm. because they had a labor shortage. They even bring in Chinese workers. The, t- the start of bringing in Mozambican, uh, Angolan, Zambian, Malawian, Zimbabwean workers is to deal with that shortage because African people weren't willing to leave the land. Yeah. 1913 Land Act is part of that. now. We are now in a situation where the flip side of that has happened. Capitalism no longer needs our warm bodies in order to generate a return or to accumulate. And that's why you have large numbers of surplus people. Largely because capitalism no longer really produces stuff on the scale that we saw in the post-war period. And effectively what that means is that you're producing a smaller base of stuff, servicing a smaller consumer market because people are not working, and creating significant social tensions among those who are able to consume and by extension are human, and those who have been relegated into the army of surplus and reserve army, as Marx says, on the margins of the society. Mm. That can only lead to an explosion. And I argue it's not only an explosion of the bubble in the finance, insurance, and real estate markets, but also a social explosion. And I understand July in that context. Mm. Leave aside the politics that there are opportunistic, political elements, who have marshaled the incarceration of former President Jacob Zuma to do it. But even that cannot explain why somebody would be willing to face recrimination and consequence for a two-liter of fish oil. Yes. But I still say
1: to you, like, as we continue on and, and, and we look at the different bits and pieces yeah. of, what they called, or, of what we have to do, you raise multiple issues and, 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 and we look at the same... Area, you know, we talk about fixing an economy sure, sure. Uh, in a den of robbers. Mm. Yeah. And I, you know, when I saw the title, I thought you were going in one direction, but <laughs> I,
3: was, <laughs> <laughs> I was quite surprised sure, by, sure. By,
1: by the outcome of what do they call of that particular article, and, and it was quite refreshing. Yeah, sure. Now, it, it's the same lot. Remember this financialization, and then in turn, The collusions that occur on various areas of the order they call it. An attempt to still keep the Glenn Grey Act uh, 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 going.
2: By other means. By other means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it this way if the World Bank must tell us that you have concentrated product and service markets, Mm.
3: there's
2: something wrong. The World Bank, the World Bank's not a socialist organization. The World Bank would never have believed in you know, the Freedom Charter, African claims, yeah. or, or anything like that. No, no, no. But the World Bank says to us, part of your economic problem as South Africa mm-hmm. is that there are too many sectors where you have dominant firms. Mm-hmm. They say our other problem, coming back to your earlier point... And that it's not kept, exportable. It's not exportable. Yes, yes, That's yes, a problem exactly, for the world we It's not exportable. Exactly. So, and also, you don't influence the price and the terms at which you export. Yes. So you can't build a strategy on prices that will yo-yo all the way mm. But then the other element is, they say in the same report, 2017 report uh, of the World Bank, they say, if you compare the sectors of the South African economy,
3: mm-hmm.
2: in mining, they say you need a pre-tax return of 8% to generate a post-tax return
3: mm-hmm.
2: of 10%. Mm-hmm. right? So you need actually less than 10% to get 10% after tax, which shows how many tax incentives the mining sector gets yes. for all manner of things. Yes depreciation allowances, equipment allowances, and all of those things. But in manufacturing, you need a pre-tax return of 22% to get 10% post-tax return.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, if you just use a risk-return framework, no money is going to go to manufacturing if you've got that situation. All the money will go to your historic sector that benefits from all the tax incentives and all of that kind of stuff. Now, a big part of what we have to do is to subvert the stronghold and stranglehold. And I know this is a compl- this is a yeah. controversial yeah. comment because commodity prices are looking good now. Yes. But we need to confront this stranglehold that the mining sector still has on the South African economy. Because if we do not do that, then it continues in its operation unfettered to create an incentive where even our manufacturing is not in the labor-intense parts of manufacturing. If you look at the manufacturing numbers, the biggest parts of manufacturing are actually steel. Uh, ferrous and non-ferrous metals. Yeah. That big, heavy machinery, which is capital-intensive and energy-intensive, but you don't see a lot of improvements in manufacture of furniture, manufacture of clothing and textiles, uh, manufacture of um, you know construction equipment and materials. All of which are probably the most labour-intensive subsectors of the manufacturing sector. So the issue is not just about us producing more. Fine, say, food in so but it has to be in valleys so in particular sectors that we know have a proven ability to absorb people who have limited or no skill, which is the kind of labor force that we have that is out of employment in South Africa.
1: But who do we place the problem, at whose doorstep do we place this problem? Because my my, my argument with you is that Mm. we own these companies. Yeah, You've got 30%, 50%, or 49% of, of all of that. We have failed Yeah. To be able to recognize that we are not just part of the ruling class. We
2: are the ruling class. But you see, you have a, you have a ruling class in South Africa that is not historically homogenous. So let me give you an example. It's a broad church. No, I wouldn't even say it's a broad church. <laughs> I, I, I argue it's a polarized church. Okay. So let me give you an example. You could be earning the same and have the same life chances mm-hmm. as an Afrikaner counterpart. Yeah. But I can assure you right now the discussion we're having, might not resonate with that counterpart as much as you would. You, you, that fellow might not see it as urgent as yes. you do. And part of the problem is that where power is broken in the society, economic, political, social, and other forms of power, we are still in our encampments by race and geography.
0: Yes.
2: And, and I come back to the same question then the nationalists are asking, that we are yet to build a nation Because if you had a nation, I mean, the reason why East Asian um, developmental states function so well is that you had a commonality of outlook at times and life experience between the new set of nascent industrialists who wanted to go in, Mm. the political power brokers and other social brokers. In South Africa, that homogeneity might exist in the political realm Mm. where the dominant political elites come from the same vantage point, they have the same vision and outlook for the society. But I can't say the same. I can't say that um, Banyasa Lusufi
3: mm-hmm.
2: has the same vision and vantage point for the society as, say, the CEO of ShopRite,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? They might exist in the same constellation of power brokers in the society, but their historic experiences are so polarized that it it is going to take a particular kind of political project and political leadership to rebuild that sense of a future common nationhood that we could have. And and we're not going to have it. Um, Because part of the reason is that how do you in the future take a child who's learning in a school now where there's no water and sanitation with a child who's at Michael House?
1: But I I hear you. As they say, one of these days... The poor will have nothing to eat, but the rich, but the rich themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And the July uprising mm. gave us a glimpse into that world. Hey, Baba. Yeah.
2: The July I, uprising. I don't think we still understand uh, what happened I, there. I, I don't think uh, we still understand, understand what the July uprising uh, meant. i uh? uh, we don't understand.
1: Yeah? we well, don't understand. Yes, we're insured, and what the uh, and Sazeria is there, and uh, you know the unforeseen uh, that the market cannot take on the one end, uh, uh, then Sazeria will take, but. Here's an issue, and and, and and be it of any race, we have an issue here that mm. is facing us on the economy. Mm. Um, you know, as they say, one of these days, that have not, you know, the poor will have nothing to eat, <sighs> that, or eat the what they call the rich themselves. Yeah, yeah. Now, what is it that is not making us see the problem the same way? Huh? The, the estates that we've built with the high yeah, walls and yeah. everything else, our gated communities. Yeah our realization that that wall is not going to stop anybody who wants to come into your house. Exactly. I mean, in July I was clear about it, that this wall is not thick enough. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah? And you can't build a house. (laughs) 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 Look, I mean, I think part of what we need to do at the psychosocial and political level is to do away with South African exceptionalism. You know, people can hype you up, you must never believe the hype. We were hyped up by the global community in 1994. You are a miracle. We've never seen this happen. This could have been a Bosnia. Mm. This could have been this or the other. And our biggest failure is that we started to believe it. We thought that was durable. We thought a miracle can outshine and outlast all of these things mm. if we hold on to it for long enough.
1: The politics of hope.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. We thought that jovial moment would last mm. forever. And it hasn't. I remember going last year to Isithebe, mm. one of the former Wazulu yeah. industrial areas. And many facilities have been burnt there. In a sector that we want to encourage, clothing, textiles, footwear, leather, and so on. And I remember not understanding why would people burn machinery? Why would people take machines, throw them in the the river, and so Mm -hmm. on? Until we drove out. When we drove out, I looked at the settlement Mm -hmm. behind the factory establishment. And I've seen in parts of the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape, farm workers' houses Mm -hmm. that look better than some of those houses. Yet, some of the big national brands have their uniforms of their staff manufactured in that place. Yet nobody ever thought on any day to say, how do we change this in a way that distributes value to some of these people? And it's the same we see now with the 30 percenters who come on site Mm -hmm. with guns Mm -hmm. to stop critical infrastructure projects. Largely because we have been baked in so much into a culture that says I can go and make my money and as long as I make my money, I'm safe. No one will touch it. And all of these things are the price of having lived in, become desensitized to and accepting life in an unequal society. And they are going to become much more fractious going forward. You know, when people have nothing to lose, uh, Pratsheb, mm. uh we... very scared at this point now because they've shown us in July that I can go to jail for a 12,5 of million mil. And I think if we are not interested in taking production to areas where there was no production, Mm. taking innovation to areas where there was no innovation, um, you know, the entry corridor, Chobut to to, uh, teguin is our biggest vulnerability in this country. They hit us there, we're done for in this region, actually, in SADAC.
1: No, believe me, I spent 12 hours on that road and I'm comfortable about the pain. <laughs> that when, when the drugs block it up, uh, what happens? Yeah, I did tell you, you owe me another book. But yes, sir. Uh, the, online, somebody has asked, do you think the South African education system, as it is, is good enough to enable us, the upcoming youth, to harness the opportunities, i.e. the, the economy that is on our doorstep?
2: No, I don't think it's good enough. I also think whenever that question is asked, there are a lot of problematic assumptions in that. Yes. So let me tell you why I don't think it's good enough. We spent 12 years at school. And after, what, how many terms is 12 years? 48 terms mm-hmm. at school. You can't fill in a tax return. Mm-hmm. You can't fill out an invoice. You can't grow your own food.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You have no basis of being able to clothe and shelter yourself. So it's not an education that gives us the ability to self-sustain. It's not an education that gives us an enthusiasm to go and fix the problems in our backyard and Mm -hmm. on our doorstep. But I also don't think that the solution is a Zimbabwean-type education. So people often say, yeah, yeah, but look at what Mugabe did with education. Well, part of my problem with the Zimbabwean education system is its encouragement of obedience. No nation that innovates does so on the basis of punitive sanction for people who don't obey. Mm -hmm. Innovations arise from people who break the mold and do things outside of the strictures of tradition, custom, established understanding of how things are done and the education system of Zimbabwe is really good at getting good educational outcomes, teaching people literacy, you know numeracy and so on, and the ability of course in diction and all of that to function in a modern economy, but it doesn't give them the kind of chutzpah and defiant Bent and streak
1: yes.
2: that is so associated with innovations everywhere in the world.
1: The second question, and maybe I'm paraphrasing because I can't see what do they call it—the the, the bits and pieces that, mm. that are there around there. Going back to your involvement with, you know, the zero rating of food. Yeah, yeah. And the question here is about government accepting a panel of advisors that are critical of it. Yes, sir. Are we there yet? the way we, 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 we are ready to accept mm. the, the, what do they call it? Uh, um, you know, those who are
2: with us. Yeah. If you are not with us, you are against us yeah. kind of conversation. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, yeah. George Bushier's type of yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think the South African government is probably the first to recognize that they don't have all the capacity they need. Mm. Um, but they're also... I've learned in the last few years, last decade or so, more open to creating pockets of advice mm-hmm. outside of government. Um, whether or not they always bring people they disagree with, I don't think is always the case. But I can share my own experience, which, I, which yes. I, I've lived through. Um, I've been roped into processes where my views going into the process were well known.
1: Yeah.
2: On the VAT issue,
1: mm-hmm.
2: increasing VAT from 14 to 15% was a horrible policy decision, and I still maintain that.
1: I would have loved to listen to you. It was a horrible. It was a regressive to, of... to, to 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 the to, to, to this. Min- oh, minifest... to my son, <laughs> yeah, to my son. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to yeah, listen yeah. to that hour's conversation
2: I mean, with my son. I, I still how think how much he works is uh, lyrical. No. I mean, and uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for Utangana, but I still yeah. felt they were wrong for doing yeah. that. Similarly, um, you know, I, I serve on the Presidential Economic Advisory Council, mm. and somebody once said on Twitter. You know, it's, it must be nice to be Ayabonga because on the one day you can criticize the government mm. and then be roped in. And I think <sighs> I took it in a certain way then, but I understand it now in a fundamentally different way. Mm. Um, that there's a certain amount of dissent that those in power are willing to accept. Yeah. And maybe I had not crossed that line. Okay. Uh, but at the time I went out, the Treasury put out an economic recovery document, and I said if it was one of my students, I would have given them a C. Yeah. Because I felt that it wasn't a document that grappled with um, the urgency of the crisis. But with the fundamentals? Yeah, all the fundamentals the, that we've been talking about the last while, I mean, right? The fundamentals. Yeah, so, so fine, I agree on network industries. It's uh, necessary, but I don't think it's a sufficient condition yes. to get you to where you want. Uh, and I've been fortunate that I've been given the space to do that. Mm. Uh, I mean, some of the things we've been talking about here on the DDM are things. I go and I present before economic cluster ministers, the president, and so on, um because I feel they are important to do so, mm-hmm. um you know whether or not I think people take it seriously or they I think it's a story for another day yes. um, but I think it's out of a recognition that you know if you're a leader and you only bring in people you agree with, mm. it is the surest way for you to get to incomplete or wrong policy outcomes you're right, the king is
1: only as good as his advisors, yeah. yeah. Now the the, the the question that has come up now is that there's a worry about this world of grants. Yes. It's breeding entitlement. I don't agree with that. And and, 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 and entitlement to what? To just not work. It's breeding okay. laziness, entitlement and and, and also other things. Look, mm, we we, we, yeah. we understand the need mm. uh, for what we're doing with that. But the question here is that does that not create a world where, you know, the black child will never ever catch up?
2: Two things. One, if we didn't have grants from 1994 mm. to 2021, 22, our inequality on the Gini coefficient would have probably been as Much close different. to mm. one. Remember zero is the most equal. Mm. One is the most unequal. We're on 0.61, two or 0.62 mm. at the moment. We're the highest of all the countries that are measured by the World Inequality Lab. Mm. If we didn't have social transfers, we would be on 0.8 or 0.9. That's the first comment. Second comment, a lot of the profitability of wholesale retail trade sector firms, Mm -hmm. and by extension the profitability of the people they buy from, would not have been possible were it not for social grants. So on the demand side of the economy, they inject significant stimulus. I think the other element on the issue of, um, and when I say the entitlement thing I don't accept. Mm. Uh, I also do entertain, I hear it. Mm. But our problem is not the grant itself. Our problem is how we've designed the grant and its interface with productive activity. So there is nothing in the grant. If you go to Brazil, Mm. the Bolsa Familia program created a system of conditional grants. You get a grant as a household if you are able to take your child to school, take them for medical check-ins, take them for all of the things that give an interface and a touch point with, with government. Similarly, I think we're in a position now where we can experiment with a lot of things that link people to the basic floor of provisions. So if I'm a young, able-bodied person getting a 350 grant, there should be a way to transition me to a community works program and an EPWP program mm-hmm. and to then further transition me to a community college or a TVED college. Um, in a mutually self-reinforcing package I think the last comment I want to make is that there are a lot of falsehoods. Mm. People say, people take Himalaya grant and they spend it on savanna.
3: That's
2: mm. not true. Um, does that mean people don't drink some of that money? Of mm. course they do. But the studies have clearly shown that a significant amount of that money is actually spent on household food requirements mm. and is also spent on basic necessities. Mm. Um, and absent of that, um, you must then tell me how do we what do we do if we lose the injection of demand that comes from the consumption baskets of poor households? How, what are we going to replace that consumption with? Um, in the economy, if we accept that the growth we want is informed by C, which is that consumption in the first ages. So, so I think for me, the issue is not around whether it's preferred or something desirable, Uh, I think the issue is around design, and I'm open on policy design to many many options. But the issue of doing away with grants because people are entitled, I think, is a lazy argument. And also, grants are reparations. We made, for centuries, people pay taxes with no relation to what it is that they could afford. There were 60-something-year-old people who were paying poll taxes. It's time for some of the fiscal transfers to work in the opposite direction.
1: I don't know, me and you we can talk until the cows come home, and they are coming home
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: in one minute, yeah, before I do the revoke. Your views on procurement are interesting, and I sure. I, I, I loved your, <laughs> your analysis of the life as Timini. Uh, yeah. And then I wondered at that point in time as the premier ever called you up and said, Man, come, let's talk about this thing." Your your, your views on <laughs> it I don't was... know, maybe the call is still coming. <laughs> still coming. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> no, but uh, uh, I was quite
2: your views on procurement and its use in yeah. being able to stimulate the economy. It's one of the most important tools we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, the buying decisions of government at multiple levels are not just about buying goods and services. Mm-hmm. But they have the potential to frame economic relationships between people, firms, households, sectors, in ways that are aligned to our vision of creating a non-racial, non-sexist, and uh, democratic society—a uh, society where people, you know, will have, um, won't have to worry about the basic things, uh, you know, where your ability to clothe yourself, to shelter your children. Um, to ensure that they go to school will not be related to your participation in the labor market. Uh, and I think that's the kind of society that we want.
1: From me, thank you, sir. It's been one heck of a ride. I, I I as I was driving here I'm thinking how am I gonna push this? I want to
2: <laughs> a way of it. It seems like you it. read the book three times though. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But we, we, we found sure. the conversation sure. and I look forward to my other two books that you're still
2: writing. They're coming back. And,
1: yeah, in, I, I, and I think there's depth there, you know, mm-hmm. the education issue yeah. and the issue of economics yeah. and, and the learning of economics. There's, there's, there's a, you know, I'll, I'll speak to Tracy McDonalds and, and yeah, talk to them about yeah, what, how yeah. do they incentivize you to sure, write another sure, book. But sure. thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I am
2: on the Thank you. Sir. Thank you very much.